Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here to the Story Hall in RMIT. My name is Ken Waller. I'm the director of the Australian Apex Study Centre at the College of Business, which is just across the road with the fancy coloured plastic windows and things. Uh, and we've been in the College of Business, uh, the centre, as for the last since uh, 2013. Um, this set of programs is uh, supported by Austrade and the intention is to really uh, broaden understanding um, by the Australian community of the intent of three major trade agreements that Australia has entered into in recent, well in the last couple of years, the uh, Korea-Australia Agreement, Japan-Australia Agreement and the China-Australia Agreement. And the intention is to try to uh, un spread knowledge about the, how these agreements impact on services sectors. And the sector we're really talking about this morning, or this afternoon rather, is the uh, food, and food sector and, food and, and services, food and services sector. Um, before I go any further, let me just say that I, I want to acknowledge in this in this hall um, that we are meeting today on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kuhan nations and we pay respects to elders past, present and future. Uh, this is a custom of RMIT and thank you for um, acknowledging that. We are, broke, we, we are uh, recording this meeting today and um, we have a photographer who's uh, moving around the, around the room. If any of you don't wish to have your photos taken or be appear on some photographs, please let us know and we'll uh, remove the picture if you so wish. Now, this, the, the, the program, as I mentioned, is supported by Austrade and in, intention to improve understanding. You may, I, I see a number of people I know well in this room. Um, we're already well versed in agricultural trade and trade agreements, but others may be less so. And as I said, the intention is to try to improve understanding. Why do we do these agreements? What's the value? And as, as I said, we'd like to focus in this particular session on food and services to do with the food industry. There are important developments within the three, three agreements that uh, we want to bring to your notice. And I would like, hopefully, that we have a, an exchange of views uh, with the three or four people that we will have speaking to you, so that you do go away with a, a deeper understanding of what this is all about. It's got to be an open exchange of views, a frank and open exchange. Uh, we, we did a similar program about four weeks, three weeks ago on financial services, and we have other programs coming along, I think, in to do with uh, legal services um, and others, other services. But today we have four speakers who will uh, outline the points of these agreements. In, in I start off, we start off with Kristen Bondietti, who's a pr principal trade consultant. ITS Global, Asia-Pacific, uh, and she will talk about the opportunities of three, these three agreements. Kristen uh, will be followed by Alan Oxley, who is the di director of ITS Global, 
both Alan and Kristen work very closely with this centre. Alan, in fact, is the chairman of the Australian APEC Studies Centre. We have a long and deep relationship. Um, the third speaker will be Anthony Kennedy, Director of Food and Fibre at the Department of Economic Development, Jobs, Transport and Resources in the Victorian Government, and will provide updates on current state government support for the Victorian food manufacturing services sector. And the last speaker uh, it will be Rod Arenas, the General Manager of Commercial Markets, Food Innovation Australia Limited. He will provide updates on current Commonwealth Government support for the Australian food services sector. The, uh, the reality to you all is that um, th this university and others I, I, in, in, in Melbourne are doing considerable amount of work in, in this sector, uh, in innovation on, food, on the food industry. Uh, I can just mention that um, we are a top provider of high-quality work-ready food technologists in Australia. That's part of the mandate of RMIT University. And our research capability is world standard. Excellence in Research Australia 2015. We have a broad industry network including Coca-Cola, Mars, Mondelez International, Unilever, etc. And strong links with leading research organisations around the world. This is a university that is really making efforts in, in areas of major interest to Victoria and to Australia more broadly. Um, we launched a $15 million state-of-the-art food research and innovation centre which brings together multidisciplinary research and development capabilities in all areas related to the post-farm gate food value chain to stimulate innovation and fill the capability gaps that are critical for the future success of the Australian food industry in the global marketplace. We see this seminar uh, as adding to that, broadening understanding of what we do as a university, but more importantly, what is Australia trying to do as a government, the Australian government trying to do, and the Victorian government in, this, in these sectors through these agreements. Um, without further ado, let me introduce our first speaker, Kristen Bondietti, who will go through the intent of the agreements, the three agreements. Kristen, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Um, what I will do this afternoon is just take you on a little tour of our free trade agreements with Korea, Japan and China on food and agribusiness services. So I'll be looking at four main issues. Firstly, what do free trade agreements do? Because there's often some confusion around that. Do they matter? Do they matter for the Australian food industry? What are some of the opportunities they might create? And how do we secure these opportunities? How do we benefit? So firstly, what do free trade agreements do? And of course the answer will vary depending on who you ask. Uh, Korean um, beef farmers will have a different view to myself and probably so will Australia's trade unions. But free trade agreements today are about more than just tariffs. And you'll probably have heard a lot about tariffs and the Australian food industry. And today I'm not going to talk about tariffs at all. I'm going to talk about services. Because 
Australia's new free trade agreements, and also some of our older ones, do more than regulate goods and just bring down tariffs. They cover a broad range of economic activity. Services, investment, IP, e-commerce, movement of labour, a whole range of things. And they do more than simply open markets as well, in my view. They can go some way to improving the business environment and they can also serve as a catalyst for market reform in other countries. And I'll talk a little bit more about this later. Mindful, of course, that the benefits vary. They vary depending on the agreements, and these depend on what has been agreed. So if we're talking about services and investment in free trade agreements, what are we actually talking about? Well, free trade agreements are treaties between governments. They're legal agreements. And services involve legal commitments for regulation. So they address and remove regulatory controls in foreign markets or in the Australian market. And they deal with regulations that governments control, the ambit of governments. And they can also create opportunities to trade and invest. When it comes to services, as I said before, we're not talking about tariff concessions. Tariff concessions apply to goods. And there's a clear delineation in the free trade agreements between measures that regulate services and which may regulate goods. They don't address private action, as I said before. They don't, gen they don't address the market itself. They deal with governments, regulations that governments control. They won't tell companies how to export successfully or to trade or invest. And they don't often grant free trade, despite their name. It's market opening to some degree. There are always exceptions and exemptions. Now, I've been asked to talk about services that relate to agribusiness and food manufacturing, which is actually quite a difficult um, thing to do because, as you know, food manufacturing primarily involves goods, but it also involves a range of services as well. As you would know, food manufacturing and trading involves making and moving goods across the borders. But in doing so, you still need services. So for the purpose of today, food manufacturing services are a little bit more specific, and they include the range of services that are designed to help move goods across borders and within national economies. For example, distribution trade, commission agent services, put them up on the screen there, wholesale trade, retailing, franchising, other services in markets as well, packaging services, um, advertising, and any other services that are incidental to manufacturing. If we were to be very specific, we might term food services um, more broadly in terms of hospitality services, so uh, food catering, hotels, restaurants and so forth, but given the audience here today, um, I thought the former definition was more appropriate. So that's what FTAs do. Why do they matter? Why do they matter to this industry? Well, we all know that the food and agribusiness industry is a very important Australian industry. It's a very significant exporter. We had $40 billion worth of exports in 2015. A major employer, over 500,000 people employed in the industry, and also a contributor to broader economic activity in terms of value added as well. And of course, the success of the industry is related to its dependence on access to reliable supply chains and distribution channels. We can make the goods, we need to move them around. 
And open services matter. Services are going to be the next driver of economic growth, particularly in developing economies. Despite this, though, the share of GDP generated by services in most developing economies still significantly lags that of developed economies. So there is a lot of room for growth of services sectors in many of our Asian markets. In addition, the barriers to services and regulation tend to be relatively high in these markets compared to OECD markets. There are also very few commitments in most of our Asian markets, FTAs with other countries to liberalise services. So both Japan and China have not made significant commitments to liberalise services in their FTAs with other countries. Korea is a bit of an exception because it has a free trade agreement with the, um, the US and the EU, so it has made some more commitment to liberalisation in those agreements. Investment as well is a key driver of growth. If you look at um, growth in investment compared to growth in trade, global FDI last year grew, flows grew by 25%, which was the largest growth since the GFC. World trade, in contrast, grew only by 2.8% and is forecast, I think, to grow by a similar amount in 2016 period. So what this shows is that businesses are increasingly establishing operations in foreign markets rather than exporting on the whole. North Asia is also very important. We put the services in context. It creates commercial opportunities for business. Demand for food is going to be driven by Asia. And Japan, Korea and China are all major food export destinations already for Australia. So I've just put up some sort of key characteristics of the market on the slide there. They're all in the handout as well. I won't go through all of them. But China is currently our largest food export market. We take into account processed food and minimally processed food and beverages. Um, the online market in China for food and beverages is also growing. Austrade estimate it could account for between 5 and 10% of food sold online. Japan is our second largest market particularly for, and the largest market for processed foods. And Korea is also important, though lags a bit. Um, Australia tends to supply ingredients to the local manufacturing industry in Korea rather than final food products. Korea has a very competitive uh, food manufacturing sector. So if we look at the breakdown there um, by top destinations for Australian food and beverage export markets, and they're the latest figures from ABEAR for this year, last year. You can see China is the biggest market overall now, followed by the United States and then Japan, with Korea coming in after Indonesia. Also, if we look at investment, because we've talked about that a little bit, if we look at the stock of investment um, from um, Chinese, Japanese and Korean investment in Australia, we can see since oh, probably around about 2007, investment by these countries in the Australian market is becoming more important, and I'll um, talk about that more. Mindful, of course, these flow, these um, stocks in terms of total numbers are still very small compared to investment by the United States, um, the UK and New Zealand in Australia. So there are commercial opportunities, but there are also um, growth opportunities in these markets arising from policy changes. 
China, Japan, Korea all recognise that their economies re need reform, particularly in the services sector. And free trade agreements in some, can go some way to helping with this process. For example, um, Japan has ratified the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, even though it is not in operation, um, as part of um, giving cover to some of its domestic reforms and services. China used accession to the World Trade Organization in a similar way to help lock these uh, legal commitments down into law and help with the political process to get them through. China's also triggered review of an APEC-wide FTA as well, the free trade, agreement, free trade area of the Asia-Pacific, which is under review. And just adding in there, of course, that building appreciation of the importance of open services and the growth opportunities of, of more open services has been a long-term goal of Australia. has been pursued in APEC under various programs. So we looked at, we've looked at what free trade agreements do. We've, we've just examined why they matter. What are some of the opportunities that these agreements offer? So there are four things, the way I see it, the free trade, agreement, free trade agreements can do. They can provide commercial opportunities, which is a technical market access, make it easier to get into the market across the border. They can help prove the, improve the operating environment in the country. So once you're in there, make things a little bit easier, which is what we call beyond the border. They can help expand investment in Australia and in foreign markets. And they can also promote economic reform in a long, more of a long-term setting. And again, by supporting more open and competitive services or having a standard setting function in the region. So let's go through and have a look at each of these in turn. There is a little bit of detail, so I won't go through all of it. All of the detail is set out in the handout, so you can read through that later. Firstly, if we're looking at commercial opportunities, what are some of those? Well, in the free trade agreements, there are new rights to deliver services that could not be delivered before from Australia across the border into some of our free trade agreement markets. For example, Australians can now provide packaging services to Korea on a cross-border basis, so without having to set up in Korea to provide that. There are also commitments to make online services delivery a little bit easier and more secure in China, and China has guaranteed not to, that it will not impose customs duties or taxes on ele electronic transmissions, which is a... a practice it has previously um, employed, but it now guarantees this treatment under the Free Trade Agreement. There are also new rights to establish and operate abroad more freely. For example, um, new rights to establish and provide some retail and wholesale services in Korea. Uh, this extends really to large stores for private wholesale markets. And there are some exceptions, of course, for meat and grains and so forth, but it is a new right nevertheless. And also these agreements um, guarantee WTO commitments for a range of services. So the market access that previously existed under the World Trade Organisation Agreement has been guaranteed for a range of services in the Free Trade Agreement to make it more secure. So that, in, that applies to wholesale trade, advertising, packaging, distributing and, distribution and franchising and so forth. So I would just make the comment that there aren't a huge range of specific market access opportunities on paper that have been created by these agreements, partly because most of these services sectors are already formally quite open in most of the economies. 
they're subject to specific restrictions. Um, and also because the WTO commitments already guarantee um, a range of these um, access commitments already. They do, however, go some way to improving the operating environment, the business operating environment in country. So there are provisions in there to support greater transparency in regulatory decision making, which can be important in markets where there is very opaque uh, decision making processes, for example, in China. So there are provisions for publication of laws, um, notification when there are changes to laws taking place. So at least you can know what you're dealing with. And of course, there are also commitments to ease movement of people and skills across borders, which can be very important to incidental business. And these are through temporary entry commitments. So the rights for people to work or to provide services temporarily in China, in Korea and in Japan, which weren't there before. And also in China, there is some access for lower skilled workers under the 457 visa program as well. The free trade agreements can also go some way to in easing the impediments to business in operating in the foreign market. So there are provisions there to ease licensing and registration procedures, or at least make the regulatory decision-making process around them more transparent. There are commitments to guarantee freedom of data transfer, which is important in today's business operations. And some provisions to help ease e-commerce as well. So, for example, the China Agreement chapter accords consumer protections um, for e-commerce in a manner that's going to be equivalent to consumer protections that are done physically. So a small change, but still important nevertheless. And then we move on to investments. So free trade agreements can help expand our investments into free trade agreement markets. And this is principally what the free trade agreements do here is they grant enforceable legal protections. So, for example, protections from expropriation without compensation, for example. Um, so these are benefits that Australian investments now receive in these markets offshore. China, I'm sorry, Japan and Korea also grant national treatment to invest Australian investments in their foreign markets, which basically means they level the playing field so that Australian investments are treated on equal terms to the domestic investors. China has made a commitment to grant this to existing Australian investments offshore. Uh, there are as yet no formal commitments in the agreement for future investments um, in relation to China. This is part of a work program set up by the agreement. Um, China, over time, will look to make specific commitments to investment liberalisation um, with Australia as part of the agreement. I'll talk about that a little bit later as well. So expanding investment, helping our, uh, make our investments offshore more secure. Oops. Free trade agreements as well can do, go some way to enhancing protection of intellectual property rights. I'd say at the outset that most free trade agreements don't grant substantive new IP rights. There are some exceptions, but generally what they do is they guarantee treaty commitments that already exist in the WTO or in um, other IP treaties. And that's essentially what the free trade agreements do too. There are some extra provisions that have been put into the FTAs to help strengthen this. 
For example, in the China agreement, uh, there is agreement by China that it will make its IP databases publicly available on the internet, and that applies to patents, trademarks, um, industrial designs, all forms of intellectual property. And there is a framework set up under the agreement whereby IP rights and issues that are of interest to private stakeholders can be raised by their various governments and brought to the attention of the other government. So it is a committee which effectively provides a platform in, under which regulators can engage in some dialogue. So it's not perfect, but it, it is a start for addressing problems. So we've talked about expanding our investment offshore. What about encouraging foreign investment in Australia? And arguably, direct investments in Australia will now become more attractive from our North Asian partners because we have agreed to grant to China, Korea and Japan the same screening threshold by the Foreign Investment Review Board for FDI, which has been raised from $252 million to over a billion dollars in non-sensitive sectors, though mindful, of course, that agribusiness and agriculture are deemed to be sensitive sectors, so <laughs> the $252 million still applies for that. Um, it is important, though, because it does give um, equivalent recognition to these Asian economies of what we granted to our other free trade agreement partners, the US, New Zealand, um, Singapore and so forth, um, investment across the board. More interestingly, though, I think it's worth making the point here that Asian investments in Australia are becoming in increasingly strategic. Um, we're seeing a um, pattern of strategic investment by Chinese firms in particular whereby food companies are securing supplies of foodstuffs to the Chinese market through their investments in Australia. This is notable in dairy, in beef, um, other agriculture sectors. And I just thought I'd share with you a, a very short case study of um, the case of Bright Food. Now, Bright Food is a Chinese food conglomerate, uh, Shanghai-based, and in 2011 they acquired a 75% stake in Manison, which is an Australian food manufacturer and distributor, key assets are a large number of respected consumer brands, has a client base of Australian food producers and manufacturers, and also importantly, uh, extensive logistics and supply network. So Bright Food acquired Madison, and around the same time they also acquired some other significant food manufacturers in, in the region and the world, including Weetabix in the UK. And following that, they then set up Bright Food Global, based in Australia. And this company then acquired some Australian food processors and producers, for example, Mildura Fruit Company in Victoria, and also Sinlate, which I believe is a dairy company in New Zealand. And this acquisition was part of a more of a strategic regional investment. It gave Bright Food Global extensive logistics and production capacity here in Australia. And the acquisition of the other producers in Australia and globally allowed it to tap into this capacity and assemble a vertically integrated regional food network. Now, to do this, it, it, Bright Food relied on local and on-ground experience in Australia. They retained the Australian CEO of Madison and kept him on board. Um, the Mildura Fruit Company, as a result of the investment, developed a range of citrus products specifically for the Chinese market, and following this, citrus sales to China jumped 600% between 2011 and 2015. Revenue increased by about 10%, with 10% of sales 
going to China. And sales are expected to double in 2016 as well, um, partly also due to the lowering of tariffs under the, the China agreement. So Brighthead managed to integrate a number of processes and producers in order to reduce costs and was able to China, provide Chinese consumers with highly regarded Australian produce. So an investment and growth in the domestic industry and opening up and supporting bilateral trade and export capacity with China. A successful story. And lastly, and I am getting towards the end, free trade agreements can also serve as vehicles for economic reform. So as I mentioned before, they can set standards for more open services markets through legally binding standards. And obviously there are longer term benefits for more open services in the region for Australia. And at times where there is increased un global uncertainty about trade, perhaps growing protectionism, these binding legal commitments can be important. So they're, they're set in stone. Of course, they can be changed, but they are very difficult to change. So there's some of the commercial and wider policy opportunities that these free-to-trade agreements can create. They're the opportunities. How do we benefit? Because, of course, an opportunity is not a gain until it is realised or not a benefit. Benefits of services are pretty hard to measure, very hard to quantify, and they take time to be realised, to factor into investment decisions. It's mindful that we're at, still at very early days with the three Asian agreements. The China agreement's only been in, in, entering into force for just a little over a year. So we'd expect more benefits, more opportunities to be realised as time goes on. What can free trade agreements do to help business secure the opportunities? They can support continued liberalisation. Um, there are commitments in the agreements to ensure Australia receives the benefits of ongoing liberalisation in free trade agreements that our partners conclude with other countries. They have inbuilt mechanisms to build on liberalisation commitments, so to make more commitments to liberalise services and investment over time. I mentioned before that there is a work program under the China Agreement for China to consider making more investment and services liberalisation commitments. That program has been initiated, it's been brought forward. The Premier was here in, Chinese Premier was here in March and there was agreement that that work on that program would begin. And there are also, I did mention in the case of IP, but within the agreements as well, they do create institutional mechanisms or platforms um, to bring regulators in various areas and sectors together to talk through and address specific barriers. For example, there is a, a TBT committee set up under the Technical Barriers to Trade section of the uh, China Agreement, which has part of its mandate to address um, barriers that business raise on a case-by-case -case basis. But as I said again, it's just a platform in which to create dialogue. So I will just leave it there. When you ask me about how we secure these benefits, then that's where I leave it to you. Um, governments negotiate these commitments, but it's important to remember business trades and invests. And obviously, FTAs are only one part of the broader commercial policy regulatory landscape we're looking at. You do need more than simply legal commitments, business strategy, understanding of the market and supportive policy environment, which is something hopefully that these FTAs can contribute to over the longer term. Thanks.
Thank you, Kristen. That was a very s specialized and uh, insightful knowledge of these agreements and their impact. They are very important, and I think some of the main points you made are... I, I particularly I was interested in the point that within the agreements, the arrangements to deal with issues as they arise, and particularly with China going forward, I think these are, these are openings that are really important for Australia long, longer term. Um, the, the bright story is really very informative. Um, I just want to say too, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but as an as a APEC study centre, we are a centre in this community which is a strong advocate of the Bogar goals, the open trade and investment policies espoused by APEC leaders uh, nearly 30 years ago now. And much of our work as a centre is how do we is improving the capacities of agencies within the region on understanding the value of open trade and investment policy. Um, and, and the objective behind that is regional economic integration. Uh, and through that, uh, growth and prosperity and improve living standards for all. These are cardinal points that we that underpin the what we do. Uh, a point that um, Kristen mentioned too was the value of structural reform. Uh, I think this is a critical ongoing process in all economies, including Australia, but every economy in APEC and globally. Uh, and looking at behind the border barriers to make our economies or manufacturing services all aspects of uh, economic interaction more efficient, more, com more transparent, and more competitive. And that's, those are the standards that we are aiming to achieve in, in the APEC Study Centre. Uh, I must say the um, drive for all of that has uh, uh, been prompted by the next speaker, Alan Oxley, who, as I mentioned earlier, is the chairman of our centre. Um, Alan will talk to you now about... Um, the, the way in which the, the things I've just mentioned and the trade agreements may or may not be impacted by Mr. Trump and his presence in the United States and other issues. But this is highly contemporary. It's a rapidly changing um, scene, as you, you'll observe from watching CNN or other newscasts that you watch. Um, I was in Seoul last week uh, for the week, and um, uh, just the, the news there is, is ever-shifting about the, the Trump administration. Fascinating story. But, Alan, over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Kit. I wouldn't watch CNN for advice on Trump. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> Fox News is a bit better, but not much. Uh, I think all the media in the United States is gobsmacked about what's running. Uh, what I was going, to, what I wish to do is to take you through uh, the implications for Trump of Trump's actions on our trade, and particularly our agricultural trade. Um, I'll give you both uh, what I call the big picture and the narrow picture. Now, uh, Trump has taken a very aggressive position that he had right from the beginning of the election campaign. <clears throat> All of those, those of us who are sort of optimists or thought we understood the economics of trade all said, well, this was just electioneering. Uh, once he gets elected, it'll change, it'll be different. 
uh, pay no attention to politicians who make claims during election campaigns, particularly in the US. I mean, their political system is entirely different to ours. American policies are rarely articulated with any technical support. They're usually colour, movement, form, um, big statements, and we've got plenty of those from Trump. He said he was opposed to the NAFTA agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, what we've seen, Trump was clearly engaged in huge political campaigning, and he tried to, as we know, capture uh, a disaffected community, which included a lot of the uh, former industrial um, states where there's relatively high unemployment, not as high as his claim. The unemployment there is not a whole lot different to ours, but there's a deep resentment remaining in those areas that there's not employment, and it's very easy, therefore, to blame uh, foreigners for this melee. As I just mentioned, you never hear the term free trade used in the United States. It's always trade. Even the politicians talk about trade because mentioning free trade invites trouble, criticism from uh, the unions and activist groups. So uh, every now and again I lapse into using the word trade. By that I would generally mean we're talking about free trade. But uh, the position he took uh, seriously aggravated the US farm sector, who are very strong supporters of Trump. And this is a very interesting paradox, and we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, there, there are some significant democratic elements in the US farm group, but also they've really been strong supporters of the uh, Republicans. Uh, <clears throat> and um, he mounted this campaign opposing as well the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And as we know, uh, that's been, well, depending on how you look at it, iced or put on the sidelines. Now, the important thing about that uh, is the implications for Japan's beef sector. Uh, just let me briefly, though, mention who was in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because one thing I couldn't quite understand is Trump never actually said what he disliked about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. This is the agreement which uh, included the US, Japan, Mexico and Canada, two NAFTA partners. <clears throat> They're the big players. They're the ones with the clout. Then there's another series of economies with much less influence. Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei, Vietnam, Peru and Chile. And it was what changed the dynamics for the TPP agreement was when Japan elected to join. And Japan has always been always wanted a free trade agreement with the Americans, always been very nervous about the intense pressure the Americans would put on them and on the farm sector. Australia uh, is a huge competitor. In, against the United States, particularly in the beef and meat sector, and for the Japanese market. And we've had a long, very good relationship <coughs> expanding our market into the Jap Japanese market for beef over time. Uh, the Americans haven't had anything like the same success, and they expected that was going to be promised to them in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. So when Trump announced that that was cancelled, they were very sore indeed. But the interesting thing is, why did Trump attack the TPP? Now, the only explanation I can come up with is, is because it included Mexico and um, Canada. Uh, both are important trading partners to the US, both are important agricultural markets, and I think it was really pressure from the uh, dissident manufacturing ex-employee ex sector uh, which led him to take this position he did, which is to say we will scrap not only the TPP, but we think we'll also pull NAFTA apart. Now, that uh, was quite significant. So what were the implications for Australian business here? Uh, beef is our major export to the US market. We are their hamburger suppliers. And they like our beef for hamburgers because it's lean, 
it's clean, and it's low fat. We're also quite significant lamb exporters. But that's the basically almost the whole story of Australia's trade relationship with the US. The other area in which we're <clears throat> well engaged with the US is significant investment. What's not really appreciated is how much Australian investment there is in the US market. It's very large indeed. So when we talk about, these days when we talk about trade agreements, Kristen mentioned the importance of investment. For us, investment in some of the bigger markets is as, if not sometimes more, important than trade itself. Now that's not affected by what Trump has done. And indeed, um, there are some elements as well in the Australian-US free trade agreement negotiated over 10 years ago, which are very important and may be under challenge now that the agriculture sector in the United States finds that it's been, not deceived, let down by the Trump administration. <clears throat> we have got a commitment from the United States when we negotiated the free trade agreement now nearly 10 years ago that after about 10 years, there'd be a slow, during the 10-year period, a slow increase in the size of our quota access to beef, and then it would rise very sharply, which is due, I think, if I'm right, David, to occur about next year. We have David Harris in the room, who's uh, one of Australia's experts on uh, agricultural trade. I'm sitting here looking at it in case I make a mistake, because David will sort of, he won't say anything much, but I can tell that he'll disapprove. But this is now of some concern to our beef producers, although I'm going to put a qualifier on that uh, in a moment, because the reality is that our beef capacity export is at full tilt until we actually expand our beef herds, which usually takes two to three years to stock up. We actually can't export more than we currently do. We're at, we're at the limit. But in two to three years' time, this will be significant, and there will be an misapprehension among our people that the US industry will put pressure on the Trump administration to close off that steady increase of Australian beef into the US market. Uh, and as well, they are particularly peeved that the cancellation of the TPP agreement meant that their promised access in that agreement to the Japanese beef market has been removed. So we've got a pretty angry US agricultural sector. Still, basically, Trump supporters don't really know what to do, but we will see something quite significant occur at some point. Now, uh, there's been some interesting responses. I'll come back to the questions why Trump's gone where he has and why it's, it's happened, because, in fact, there still are no really clear answers, except for some developments in the last 48 hours, which are quite intriguing. But I'll end up on touching on those, because it just shows at the moment how volatile the political circumstances are in Washington at the moment. But Trump said that he, um, he, he was, is critical of NAFTA, and I think the only reason I, can, only reason I can think why he wanted to sink the Trans-Pacific Partnership was because Canada and Mexico were members. And what he really wanted to do was to stall the NAFTA agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and indeed uh, was even talking about maybe we replace it with two bilateral agreements. Now, what it was to be done on that um, was not really known, and we'll forget the, the relevance of building the wall against Mexico isn't actually directly significant, it's just part of the political background. But the US farm sector has now been sitting weighing up just how to deal with this. Um, we think they're likely to pressure the administration to secure, to pressure Japan to go back and restore the commitment to take back beef from the US. Um, Japanese are very unlikely to agree to this. All the current signs are is that they're very angry, very disappointed about the cancellation. Um, Japan's not usually into the business of trade retribution, and they haven't got that much room to move, particularly when it comes to agriculture. 
But it, there are reports now that they're looking to take that Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement and restructure it without the US. There'd be a fair bit of showboating in this because uh, these agreements all depend upon the bigger economies contributing. The smaller economies like ours, we get gains on the fringes. But what the dynamism in these agreements and what was a dynamism in the TPP was the fact that it embedded a US-Japan free trade agreement, which had never existed before. That's really very significant. And that's what puzzles a number of people that uh, um, Trump seemed uh, relatively um, non-plus, uh, not, not relatively um, uh, in disregard of, of the significance of that. Um, the long run here is, uh, is okay for Australia. Kristen's mentioned our commitments under the uh, Chinese, under the Asian agreements, which are very significant. Um, only in the last 24 hours have we seen some sort of clarity. I thought when Trump, in um, three, what, last week, when he announced that he was uh, going to line up with the Chinese to deal with the North Koreans, uh, engaged in something quite sophisticated, something which was actually missed in the media. Because um, what Trump announced was that uh, they were no longer going to treat uh, China as a currency manipulator. Now, what was missed in the fine print is that, and therefore having said that, he then said, now we can collaborate with the Chinese to help deal with the problem in North Korea. Uh, what he didn't say, but what was in the fine print, is that the US Treasury had decided about three days before that, the US, that China was not a currency manipulator and were plainly going to say so. But they didn't put, release that until the day after Trump announced that China wasn't a currency manipulator after all. And he, I think, I thought that was interesting. It showed uh, a willingness to shift off uh, an ideological position, a vote-catching position, and to actually engage in some serious diplomacy. And I was wondering if we might actually hope to see something like that as time passes with the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Um, over the weekend, uh, there was a flurry because um, what has now been announced by the President is that he will go ahead and agree that there should be a review of the North American Free Trade Agreement. But what's now come through on the background news uh, reports from, we have some associates in Washington, uh, Beltway Insiders, that there was a frantic 24 hours in Washington when Trump had taken advice that he was going to cancel the NAFTA agreements with Canada and the US there were reports that he rang the heads of government of both those countries who said don't, and the Mexicans probably said don't you dare, because the Mexicans had already lowered their tariffs to allow further product in to compete against US food exports into the market. The Canadians are more sanguine. I think they're used to dealing with the Americans, but the Mexicans were very sour indeed. Uh, the good sign, the good thing, is that up the upshot of all this is that Trump has agreed that the NAFTA agreement can be renegotiated and reviewed. And uh, I've, I've been recently in a conference uh, with senior American and Mexican and Canadian officials, and they consider that a review of NAFTA is timely. It's quite an old agreement. There are some major achievements that can be uh, made, and that they will do so. But a friend of mine who is about to retire from the United States Trade Representative's Office, their Trade Department, if you like, Trade Policy Department, pointed out to me one day that uh, once they began that process of revising NAFTA, then uh, it is unlikely that that could be agreed and legislated inside the time on term of the Trump government. Now, the reason for this in the US is that trade agreements never get put up a year before an election. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but in the United States, it's every four years there's a Senate election, but every two years there's a House election. 
So, and it's a golden rule in the US Congress that you don't put a trade agreement up on the eve of an election. So it's only sort of year one and year, year, year two, year, at the end of year one and the end of year three is time that you might consider trying to get a trade agreement through the US Congress. And he observed to me that the, the NAFTA agreements are quite complex. You can't get something quick through in that sort of time. And that uh, that's unlikely, he thinks, that the reforms, which presumably would be negotiated, could be brought into effect within that time. Why does that matter to us? Well, uh, I think the TPP agreement is simply parked. Uh, Trump's walked away from it, but if he's now going to agree that Mexico and the United States, Mexico and Canada, can uh, be left to review their agreements and make some concessions to the U.S., uh, then the case against TPP disappears, because the only objection he could have had to the TPP was the fact that Canada and Mexico were in it because they were NAFTA partners. Now I, I suffer the sin of being a residual optimist. And, but you might say, well, isn't waiting four years significant? All I can say to you is that in, in trade time, four years isn't a very long period at all for new trade agreements. Thanks. OK, uh, thank you very much, Alan. Some great inside-the-belt insights. Um, we're come to, I should say, too, we should have questions uh, after all the four speakers have delivered their comments, and then um, we can have an in-depth discussion on the, some of the points that, well, Kristen raised and now Alan. The next speaker is Arthur Kennedy, uh, Anthony Kennedy, I'm sorry, Director of Food and Fibre at the Department of Economic uh, Development, Jobs, Transport and Resources, Victorian Government. And he will provide an update on current state government support for the Victorian food manufacturing services sector. Anthony, please. Thank you. Um, thanks for that introduction and apologies for my lateness. I, um, I thought I knew where I was going within RMIT. I found Building 15 and um, realised that I had to go to the other side of the campus. So I made it eventually. So. I just thought I'd start off by giving a bit of a high-level overview of what um, the department focuses, is in, focuses in on, and essentially it's jobs, investment and export. And as you can see from the title, it includes just about every function within the department, uh, within the Victorian government in that economic space. But um, I guess that um, of particular focus, and the way I like to think of our department, is just really concentrating on that economic part of the story. The Victorian Government, when it came to power back at the end of 2014, was to concentrate on a couple of priority sectors, um, medtech and pharma, international education, new energy, uh, professional services uh, and uh, advanced manufacturing, as well as food and fibre. And so um, we, we have uh, specific programs dedicated towards helping the jobs, investment and export agendas in all those priority sectors. And I guess that I just want to touch on some of those key ones. Admittedly, some of them are investment-type uh, activities. But when you think about it, uh, the export story inherently drives a lot of that investment in terms of uh, companies responding to international pressure or whether they're seeking to capitalise on those opportunities that they see from overseas. I'm delighted to be asked to come to today uh, mainly because in a former role with the Victorian Government I did a stint in the Department of Premier and Cabinet 
And whilst the Commonwealth is largely responsible for that trade agenda for Australia, um, it did remind me how the state government and state governments around Australia can play an important part in helping to inform how these free trade agreements, or depending on which side of the coin you're from, perhaps more just better described as economic partnership agreements, um, where we can really try and get better value out of these uh, negotiations. And I guess that um, having focused in on the Korean, Japan and China free trade agreements, it was abundantly clear that that intelligence from industry um, is very helpful in terms of highlighting not just those uh, obvious tariff barriers but also where those non-tariff barriers are. And feeding that through into the Commonwealth was enormously helpful because we were able to inform them and saying, if you can negotiate an agreement where we think that these issues can be addressed, then that's where Victoria feels that the best um, efforts can be invested. And obviously, if you think that that scenario won't be addressed, uh, then go back into those negotiations and see how well you can do in terms of addressing them. Oh, oh hang on. So again, just focusing on what the department does, it's largely economic development. There is this priority being put on the food and fibre sector. And I must um, also highlight that um, with the Victorian government's focus on those priority sectors, it allocated $200 million in its future industries fund. And guiding the investment and activities that the Victorian government um, takes in the medium and long term, developed up sector strategies, which are largely those um, uh, informed by industry uh, consultations where, where those uh, half dozen uh, critical activities, certainly from the economic development point of view, uh, centre in on and, and really exploiting the investment opportunities, obviously capturing on those market development opportunities, which are largely the export story, uh, as well as then doing some more capability stuff and focusing in on that innovation story. And when you think about it, that innovation story can't be divorced from the trade story because, um, as I'll touch on in the next couple of slides, uh, we have people from overseas deliberately coming to Victoria looking at those products that they think will help meet their needs, what those customers overseas are looking for. And if there isn't any product innovation, if there's no product development happening here in Victoria, there comes a point where there's no point them coming in here because they've seen it all and there's nothing to whet their appetite in, in future years. So for those of you that haven't um, seen this strategy, um, I think there's some links at the end of my slides, uh, presentation here where I encourage you to have a look at that online because it does help inform um, how the Victorian Government invests and prioritises its efforts um, over the next few years. I like to think of Victoria as being a food and fibre capital. You, we've got nearly 30% of that um, activity happening here. And when you look at the goods exported from Victoria, almost one in every $2 of goods that are exported from Victoria is a food or fibre product. Now, I'm not talking about international education. I'm not talking about tourism. I am just talking about the physical goods that go out from this state. Again, when you look at those top uh, 100 odd exporters, uh, you can see almost half of them are those food companies. So obviously underpinning our reputation is that food safety as well as biosecurity systems that we have in place that provides the assurances. And again, the Victorian Government, in collaboration with the Commonwealth Government, tries to ensure that we put our best foot forward on that, uh, on that front. If you look at this strategy that I referred to earlier, you'll see that there is a large uh, section talking about capturing those market opportunities. And specifically, those uh, key actions centre upon uh, capturing uh, uh, and building on the um, 
capability that exists, and that might include in part things like e-commerce, uh, because it, it certainly strikes us that whilst you might be competitive, um, there are these new channels that are being um, forged ahead internationally, working with organisations like FIAL and the Commonwealth about trying to get those systems lined up, get that capability happening within our sector, is enormously important. I'll also uh, touch on some of the other trade programs that we engage in. Obviously, hosting those inbound and outbound activities are fairly important too. So we, again, expose those buyers to uh, the opportunities, the manufacturers that are here in Victoria. Um, for those of you in the room that have been in state government a while will be familiar with the fact that this, these are not new activities. Um, but it wasn't so long ago that we were doing the large missions overseas, whereby we were taking a hundred odd companies. That was very much designed to try and build um, momentum in terms of getting that trade agenda up, up, in, up in lights. But, but now we're obviously taking a more targeted approach, making sure we're taking the right companies to those right areas. And it will come as no surprise to anyone in this room, um, a large focus happening in China, uh, Korea and Japan. And certainly where we have those uh, agreements in place, uh, again, working collaboratively with those companies to exploit those new economic partnership agreements. And if I can digress uh, for half a second and, and using an example outside the food space, we had a situation about four years ago where one of our uh, business development managers was working with uh, someone in the... Uh, in the uh, manufacturing space that were building brakes, I think it was for trains, and just by looking at the different agreements that were available, and in some instances where we have all these free trade agreements, we might have three agreements in place with one particular country. And so by doing a little bit of homework, by getting into the ANZIC codes and all those details at the appendix of these agreements, it was, it was, it was highlighted that by picking a certain agreement would save a company uh, $27 million, or their products were going to be $27 million cheaper per annum just by using a different agreement. So it certainly highlights that even when we have these agreements in place, understanding how you can utilise uh, the right agreement for the right product um, is certainly a challenge. And, and the Victorian Government has had discussions with the Commonwealth, particularly DFAT, in terms of how can we develop a tool, how can we develop up a website that can really help guide um, which sort of products are best traded under which agreement where you have multiple agreements in place. And particularly if we go to these more pluralistic activities, particularly where, um, where, there's, where there's countries that will be covered off a number of times, I think that that might become uh, increasingly important as we move forward into the future. It would be remiss of me, and I'm sure that my agricultural colleagues would be a bit annoyed, if I didn't highlight the other key uh, string to our strategy in terms of... Um, certainly helping with that market access regime. And again, uh, the Department of Agriculture in, in Canberra and DFAT um, have the lead on these sorts of these, these actions. But at the end of the day, there are certain protocols that can be developed. There are certain conversations and relationships that can be um, uh, developed over time whereby um, we can get uh, market access uh, into countries where our products are no longer, where, where they're not um, uh, permitted to come in. And a good example of that has been some of the uh, stone fruit opportunities into China, which I think was announced towards the end of last year. By getting these countries to accept our protocols and by providing them with the assurance that we have um, their concerns addressed through various uh, scientific and, and um, 
evidence-based approaches gives them the confidence to accept our products. And again, uh, there's a great science capability that we have here in Victoria and we can't do every market and every product, but we certainly have prioritised where we think the size of the prize warrants it, and working collaboratively with those uh, overseas market regulators as well as the Commonwealth to try and ensure that we can get access where there isn't necessarily a, a, a um, tariff that's causing the barrier. It's one of these non-tariff um, barriers. I'll move on. Um, as I said, there are a number of programs that the department offers. I don't want to labour these ones. I have touched on that trade mission program at the end there, and I can't help but feel that um, that's probably where uh, some of the best work of the department occurs, um, mainly because um, if you want to try and grow jobs, if you certainly want to try and uh, take companies on a growth uh, journey, uh, making sure that they're adequately informed, making sure that they are plugged into the right markets uh, is very important and I think that exports becomes a very important cornerstone to their future and of course there comes a point whereby where they are meeting uh, export market demand, um, there comes a point where they've got to grow their capacity, they've got to certainly uh, perhaps in some instances make, make a defensive play which is to certainly try and improve their competitiveness. And the way in which um, many companies go down is the, is the pathway of investment. And so these programs are currently are what's on offer at the moment. Um, as I said, they are perhaps the other side of that growth story in terms of market access. Um, there's also a couple of other ones there that I need to highlight. These are perhaps the ones that are more focused in on some of that regional story as well. Again, when you look at the food industry, 60% um, of all the food companies uh, that we have here in Victoria are based in the regional areas, 40% here in town. And when you look at that supply chain, and perhaps this underpins why the Victorian government has highlighted the food and fibre story as being such a priority to the state, uh, one in six jobs in regional Victoria is linked back to that food value chain. So again, that's why we have some dedicated programs to under, underpin growth, uh, growth in terms of investment as well as job creation. So as I said at the, um, a few slides ago, um, there are a number of programs that I think can help directly uh, with, with uh, trade stories as well as the investment story. But I think it's probably fair to sum up that when it comes to trade, um, we, we, the Victorian Government, do take a strong interest in those economic partnerships being uh, negotiated. We, we try and take a considered, for, uh, considered view forward to DFAT. Obviously there are some things that can sit in a free trade agreement that doesn't suit Victoria's interests well. We certainly try to lobby and highlight why having certain things um, included in these agreements is good for Victoria and therefore good for Australia. We certainly um, are aware of the importance of that export story and sometimes it can be import replacement as well uh, in terms of helping those companies with their growth journey. And I think that by understanding how to better exploit um, the economic partnerships that have been uh, negotiated is pretty important. Just to go back to my time in Premiers, we actually did a little bit of economic uh, analysis with some of those free trade uh, agreements that I mentioned earlier and interestingly um, the consultants say we only expect to get two-thirds of the value of these free trade agreements. So they put a discount factor on what we were guessing might be in those free trade agreements and then they put a discount factor of one-third. 
because the experience is, is that when you negotiate a free trade agreement, you don't get the full benefit of it. And I think that that is a travesty of common sense. And I think that working with organisations like FIAL, working with organisations like DFAT, understanding the full benefits and potential benefits of these free trade agreements is, I think, an important role for government to help industry um, get the best out of what's being agreed. So whether it's building capability, whether it's building understanding, whether it's trying to get uh, a little bit more access to lucrative markets by, by addressing that um, non-technical uh, barriers to trade, I think is probably where the Victorian government can do some good work in partnership with important stakeholders and hopefully try and um, help Victorian companies um, grow, create jobs and continue to invest. And if we can get that right, uh, I suspect we can live to my little motto, which is perhaps we can eat our way to prosperity in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anthony. Uh, very important comments, and I think uh, jobs, growth, investment clearly, uh, and the impact on regionally Victoria from these agreements is extremely important. very important point you did raise, I, I'd like to take it up in questions, is the one of um, some agreements do something valuable, others less so, and you've, we've got to cherry pick to find the, the best. This is a criticism of what we keep coming across, the sp spaghetti bowl effect of many bilateral agreements, but... Um, the question is, do we need, we go for those rather than no agreement. The question is, we, we have to keep going for access, I think. But there's something we can talk about. Next speaker is Rod Arenas, uh, General Manager, Commercial Markets, Food Innovation Australia Limited. Uh, he will, Rod will provide an update on current Commonwealth Government support for the Australian food services sector. He's got to do a lot to beat what Victoria's go, uh, doing, but uh, let's, Rod, you, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Ken, and uh, thank you for the invitation to uh, present on uh, Food Innovation Australia today. Um, today I'll be focusing on uh, what we do as an organisation for the country. Um, um, we're part of the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science, so we, uh, we were created specifically to deliver a food and, agri a food and agribusiness strategy for the country uh, moving forward, and I'll run you through, through some of those uh, yeah, um, I guess stepping stones and, and some of the uh, challenges that we have moving forward. Uh, but before I get started on the programs and the services that we can offer, um, I'll get started on, uh, I was actually lucky enough to be invited to, a, uh, to DFAT, uh, I was there on Friday, uh, to participate in a trade agreement negotiations and implementation meeting. And I was privy to a few interesting uh, um, comments from uh, DFAT, and I thought I'll share some of those with you, and I'll, I'll be specific on, on APEC, of course, because that's, that's what this uh, organization uh, uh, specializes on, but uh, it was interesting to note that uh, on the day, uh, obviously APEC is seen as an important vehicle to, uh, for advancing a trade, um, but uh, as you know, uh, there'll be an APEC uh, meeting in, Viet or Vietnam is hosting a meeting uh, in November, I believe, this year. Um, on the agenda, specifically, they will be discussing human resources, uh, SMEs, so small to medium-sized enterprises, uh, food security <clears throat> and agriculture, uh, the rise of anti-globalisation, which I thought was an interesting one, uh, 
Um, but there's two specific topics that uh, we'll be touching on uh, at that meeting in Vietnam. One of them is the Asia-Pacific capacity for building of services moving forward. And also, too, they have also agreed to a services roadmap to improve competition in services. It sounds like services is a big, big uh, topic on the day, and also, obviously, the rise of anti-globalization, which uh, is an interesting one. Um, moving away from, from um, APEC, one of the other interesting topics that came up during this uh, briefing uh, is e-commerce. E-commerce is starting to become a uh, debatable and hot topic, um, and uh, obviously they're looking to review the uh, FTA e-commerce chapter, especially on custom procedures, electronic payments, and supply chain logistics. So some insights there from that meeting. Um, there's a whole bunch of other countries that were discussed, but uh, uh, maybe on a different occasion I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk about FIAL uh, uh, from now. So uh, what is FIAL and what do we do? It's not a... There we go. <laughs> Uh, so, as I mentioned, we uh, were created by the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science, and we deliver the centerpiece of the Australian government's industry policy. So, what are we here to do in a nutshell? To open the doors, to remove the gatekeeper, to open the doors for products, for food and agribusinesses, both domestically and overseas. Why are we doing this? We've gone from mining to dining, as I say, as I call it. Um, Actually, some people say from mining to wine, but uh, this uh, depends on what your preference is, I guess. And why is that? Well, um, without spending too much time on the figures, they speak for themselves. You know, the growth in food and agribusiness uh, sales uh, overseas or exports overseas uh, has been tremendous over the last uh, couple of years. And not only just on uh, exports themselves, uh, on finished products, but also on fresh produce as well, too. We've had a 49% increase um, of uh, to $1.5 billion. So huge numbers, and hence the reason why the government, uh, the federal government, is putting a lot of uh, focus in this uh, space. Uh, why are we doing this? We're doing this because the supply is there. We do have the means and capabilities to supply food to the rest of the world. So we, so we based on figures, uh, we produce enough food for 60 million people. Um, how many people do we have in this country? 24, 24 and a half million. So we, we, we have the capabilities to do it. It's not like we're taking away food from children to, to export uh, food to the rest of the world. So definitely huge amount of opportunities in that space, and hence the reason why it's so important to utilize uh, the FTAs to your advantage. A vision. So we do have a vision. We have a vision that we've... Uh, so this went through... Uh, the minister, through, through the uh, federal government, um, there were some recommendations made. So think of us as a bit of a filter. Think of us as we get all the industry, the sector, coming to us with certain red tape, certain issues that they have. We filter all that information. We fit it to government. And basically, we came up with a strategy moving forward. This uh, on our website um, is available to the public. So you're more than welcome to download that off uh, of the FIAL website. Uh, basically, we're looking to access new markets increase productivity, and be more competitive. So what can I offer you today? What can I, if there's any food manufacturers or growers in the room that are interested in taking advantage of some of our services and programs, 
Um, I can offer you several different uh, opportunities today. One of them is a platform that we run. This is a free platform. It costs you nothing to, to jump on there and register your products. Uh, so at the moment, actually, we ca currently have about 1,500 plus international buyers in there. So I should have updated that number. Uh, 50 plus countries uh, are represented from buyers across the world. And uh, we have, actually, that number is 800 plus export exporters, uh, export, ready, ex export ready companies sitting on that website. Now, we don't get involved in the commercial side of things. We also, we, this platform is purely to offer a connectivity and opportunity for you to sell your products via this platform to make the connection with buyers, not only domestically, but also overseas. Um, again, if, you do, if, if you're in that space, by all means, please jump on there. It's absolutely free. Government is also utilizing this platform. Australia is utilizing this platform. It's starting to get traction. The rubber is starting to hit the road. So yeah, so great opportunity. And again, it's, it's uh, completely free. That's uh, the breakdown there at the moment of some of the buyers that we have there on that, uh, on that platform. We're in a very lucky position here in Australia that uh, you know, we, our products, our food is seen as uh, green, clean, premium, high bar security. So there's a huge demand for Australian food across the world. Um, interestingly, I'm getting a lot of uh, inquiries uh, from Mexico at the moment because uh, what's happening in the US, uh, the, Mexicans, the Mexicans no longer want to purchase US-made products. They want to, they want to buy Australian-made products. So uh, I guess Trump is help, helping us a little bit there from a, from a different perspective, I guess. Uh, a huge amount of uh, opportunities there from Asia-Pacific, from the Middle East, and from up and emerging markets, which are uh, both Central and South America. Actually, interestingly to note, um, uh, I have organized with the, uh, it's called the Pacific Alliance. So the Pacific Alliance is a group of Central and South American countries that have come to together to collaborate and to promote trade. They will be coming to Victoria, to Melbourne, in October, either mid or late October. I'm actually talking to Anthony's colleagues this afternoon in regards to how we can pull it off. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely happening. So anyone interested in that space, uh, we will be running an event uh, on the Pacific Alliance. Uh, and um, so some of the countries in there include Mexico, uh, Chile, Peru, Colombia, and a few others. So um, yeah, if anyone is interested in that space, keep an eye on, uh, on the Victorian website and uh, our website. So what are we doing? So as part of this um, <clears throat> platform, that we run, we're getting some data. We're getting some data out of that. We're also getting some data out of trade shows that we run overseas, and also out of inbound missions that we run as well too. So we also uh, bring, in, bring buyers from across the world to the state of Victoria. Or, well, I guess the difference is that it's not just Victoria. We're, when we bring a, a buying director from a, from a large retailer from overseas, we don't just bring them to the state of Victoria, we, bring them, we take them across the country. Um, we've done some of those missions. Uh, we're looking to do some new missions in the future from, the, from Asian countries, uh, there's uh, um, uh, China, we still continue to work with some Chinese buyers as well too, so there will be some Chinese buyers coming through, but we're still working through some of those opportunities. Once you actually register on the Australian Food Catalog, the, the platform that I mentioned before, you'll get an invite. You'll get an invite to actually meet some of these buyers, depending on whether or not those buyers want to, because what we do is that we give them a list of all the companies, food companies, and growers that are on that platform. So then they basically choose who they want to meet with. So if you're not on there, you basically get excluded. So very important to be part of that platform because you could get an, an invite from us to meet with some of these buyers that, are, that we bring into the country. So uh, very important. 
uh, and what is the data that we're collecting? So we're collecting data on what are the products that those particular markets are interested in. So for example, if we look at the Australian food catalogue, the number one product that's in demand is Australian health and organic foods. If we go to Latin America, we're getting a lot of interest on ready-made meals. Middle East, spread sources and condiments. Asia, health foods again, health foods, health foods, and baby food in Hofex, which uh, uh, Hofex actually happens on the 8th of May this year. We're there again, uh, which is uh, a trade food exhibition that happens once every uh, couple of years in Hong Kong. So um, I guess out of this, there's huge demand for Australian um, organic uh, health-related products uh, because they see, obviously, it makes sense that they see us as uh, green and clean, therefore they're looking for those organic products from us. Trade shows. So what do we do? What else do we offer the, the, the industry and the sector? We offer an opportunity to, to come along to various different trade shows across, um, well, not only actually, well, we do it domestically as well too, but, um, but overseas trade shows, we, uh, so this year we've gone to Gold Foods in Dubai, uh, we're off to Hofex next, uh, then we'll be going off to Food and Hotel China uh, in Shanghai, which is a food service related uh, exhibition. So uh, restaurants, hotels, resorts, um, very, it's one of those very specific trade shows that happens in November in Shanghai. So Food and Hotel China, um, that's already locked in. Um, fine foods, we might be going to fine foods uh, winter and summer fancy, fancy foods in the US as well too. So we're always looking at where the opportunities are to, to take uh, Australian food manufacturers and suppliers with us. It doesn't cost a lot of money to come along to these trade shows with us. Um, um, in fact, um, to be very transparent, um, we charge $350 to come along, you know, um, to have a space with your product on the, on the stand. If you're looking to come in person and sample the products yourself, obviously it's a little bit more expensive, but uh, we try to make it affordable, especially for small to medium-sized enterprises, to get an opportunity to get a, a guarantee at these trade shows overseas. This is Food and Hotel China, uh, some of the statistics there. So we, uh, we showcase 50 plus Australian brands. Uh, we, took, uh, we added 83 buyers to the database. From, uh, most of them were from China. And we made close to 2,000 connections. And out of the 13 uh, companies that actually attended the, the tri show and were actually sampling the products on the stand, Eight of them secured business on that exhibition. So eight of them now uh, are now selling to Chinese um, retailers or importers or distributors. One of them, as an example, was an uh, ice cream supplier or ice cream manufacturer from Toowoomba who is now supplying to a retailer uh, in China. Um, so yeah, so we had, we're getting some very good results out of these uh, trade shows. Yeah, so that's the breakdown. Um, there were, there were the uh, products that were of interest at that exhibition, so health foods, biscuits, snack foods, chocolate, confectionery, and baked goods. There's some of the results from other exhibitions. You can get this information on our website, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but uh, as I said, we were getting very, very good results out of these uh, exhibitions that were run, um, and obviously all this gets reported back to the federal government. We offer free reports as well, too. We offer... Uh, a platform as well too, we, insights, all again for free to help you in your journey of exporting products, uh, not only to Asia, but to other parts of the world. We offer funding as well too. So we 
So Food Innovation Australia has a Enterprise Solutions Centre. The Enterprise Solutions Centre is basically given uh, or funded more than 50 companies year to date, uh, and they have delivered in excess of $50 million in sales. So basically this is a program where we encourage innovation, we encourage companies to to you know to come up with uh, you know with new technology. Uh, if you have a, a technical challenge that you need to address, so for example, when you go to overseas markets, one of the first questions they ask is, "What is the shelf life for your product?" If the shelf life for your product uh, is less than three months shelf life, highly unlikely that they're going to take your product on board. So we offer funding for those type of technical challenges. So if you need to extend your shelf life from three months to twelve months, we can get you in touch with research facilities. We actually work out of the CSRO uh, building, food innovation building in Werribee. We also work out of uh, CSRO in North Ryde in Sydney. So we, we work very closely with uh, research uh, organisations. Um, yeah, so we've got another project fund as well too. So yeah, these are all um, uh, national projects that were run through, uh, through the federal government. But again, there's uh, match funding there for up to $100,000 and up to a million dollars um, for uh, various different projects. So, uh, again, all this information is, in, is on our website, and, uh, and if you've got any specific questions, I'm more than happy for you to contact me directly. Um, this is an interesting one. We put this out um, um, last year, uh, celebrating innovation. Um, so this is um, a way to celebrate Australian food and agribusiness innovation. Um, we. Um, had numerous entries from across the country. Um, the entries get selected by a panel, and uh, we now are up to book uh, version two, which is uh, currently uh, or has gone to print. So we should have this uh, in the next two to three weeks. Should be we should be ready. Uh, should be, uh, actually, I'll donate one of them to RMIT so they can have a copy of it. But uh, it is for sale, and uh, all the all the proceeds go back to running this wonderful. Uh, uh, programs and uh, obviously um, go, helping, trying to help manufacturers and suppliers, um, you know, with funding. Um, so yeah, so the, the money goes to uh, support Australian uh, food manufacturers, but also at the same time, I guess the main aim of this book is to celebrate the innovation that happens here in this country. Um, we are running 61 workshops across the country um, at the moment. I think we're halfway through already. Um, on eight different topics. They're the topics there. Eh? So from e-commerce to are you ready for exports, to retail, to market diversification, to IP and brand protection. All these workshops are free. They're funded again by the federal government. They're run by industry experts. Uh, so the, there are programs, but they're facilitated by industry experts. Uh, I highly encourage you to attend. If you're in if you want to learn more, in, if any of those topics they tickle your, uh, your interest, by all means, register. Um, interestingly, the retail and food service, uh, and there's also an actual uh, private label workshop as well too, that came in con into conception because we're actually running domestic engagement with the, the, the um, larger retailers and the um, independence. So, for example, we're doing a row show at the moment with calls. So we're taking calls across the country. Uh, uh, don't worry, they're paying their own way. It's not like we're paying for them. They're paying their own way. All they want from us is to introduce them to companies um, that uh, are interested in supplying uh, calls uh, nationally. So uh, we're running these workshops at the moment. I'm actually off to um, 
uh, Tassie tomorrow to Hobart to run another event on Wednesday. So on average, we have about 100 companies that attend these events. So basically, what we do is we're trying to remove the gatekeeper. We're trying to give access to, again, a small to medium-sized enterprises to get in front of the calls buyer, to get in front of the, um, the likes of your independent supermarket buyers and have the conversation. So we run this event as a speed dating event. So it's just you have 15 minutes, 15 minutes to talk to the buyer. What is your value proposition? What is your point of difference? Why do you want to sell to that particular retailer? So again, we're trying to open the doors and remove the gatekeeper. Um, Fast and the Furious, so we offer uh, a workshop on innovation. Um, and um, again, this is also a free event that we run across the country. So uh, again, jump onto our website and you can see the different dates there for uh, Fast and Furious innovation. Uh, lastly, to finish off, um, leverage off our, our, research, our, um, our reach to the industry. We work with numerous uh, different uh, associations, uh, state governments, federal governments, uh, Australia retailers, industry networks, basically anyone that's interested in food and agribusiness, we want to work with. So we, we, anyone that's in that space, in that ecosystem, we're interested in talking to you as long as you're interested in buying or, or sourcing Australian food products. Just some of, our collabor some of the collaborators that we have, um, and that's pretty much it. Thank you very much.